Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Well, we're back here again, and it's early Sunday morning. Dan, how's your weekend been so far? It's been going along pretty well. How's yours? Pretty good. Pretty good. My voice is a little off today, or, or actually, it has been refined. I've cultivated this nice little cold so that I can have a more throaty voice for our podcast. To put a little bit different variety into it, so it's not the same old voices, right? Good. Yeah, exactly. Good yeah, thinking. Yeah, eventually, I want to get to kind of a James Earl Jones level. You've got a ways to go for that. I do. So today, we're going to talk about group dynamics and specifically groupthink, which is a term that probably many people are familiar with. It goes back to a experimental psychologist from the middle of the 20th century, Irving Janus, who coined this term groupthink to describe the set of biases that surround thinking of groups. It's interesting because it's very pervasive within the market in a couple of different settings. And I think this one, Dan, we're probably going to need to break it up into two different podcasts. It's such an incredibly deep topic since group dynamics are extremely complex complicated and very important. So we'll be breaking this into the general benefits of following groups in markets and the value of thinking in groups in general. And then we'll do a part two on this where we talk a little bit more about the downside of group thinking. And this goes back to our mental models. So it turns out that we are just very interested in what others say. Human behavior is compelling to us naturally. And so it tends to break through and get attended to often more so than it should be. So whoever we're listening to will distort our mental picture of the situation. So it's seeking a diversity of opinions can give you a more balanced sort of mental model framework. It's been an issue, the group or the crowd that's been talked about really throughout investment lore. There's a quote from Benjamin Graham many, many years ago, and I'm going to uh, mutilate this to some degree. Basically, he said that you're not wrong or right because you're with or against the group. It's really the quality of your analysis that matters. I think there's actually more depth to it than just that. I think understanding group dynamics and recognizing their presence within your decision making can actually aid you to become a better investor. It's extremely important to reflect on what you've heard from others, what their motives might be, and try to gain more social evidence because I think what happens, we call it theory of mind in the research world. Theory of mind is this idea that other individuals have their own mental model that they're building and they're going to inform you sometimes accurately, sometimes inaccurately, sometimes mislead you. That can be intentional misleading or it can be unintentional based on they simply have the wrong information. So it's almost like this meta-analysis of our thinking. We have to step back and try to question where was that person coming from with a particular opinion? And it helps to do that analysis because often aggregating people's opinions and considering the deeper motives will lead you to some insights. We have these very natural tendencies to follow the group. And it's not always such a bad strategy. Often others have a pretty good idea as to what's going on in the world and to be able to simplify our decision making we'll just follow what they do for a science experiment my daughter was in grade school we did this work on what group influence was a number of my friends and I we all went downtown to Dallas and we would stand
stand up on a busy street and stare at the side of a building. Interestingly enough, people would actually stop and look up because they saw that there was this big group of people that were looking up at the side of this building. My daughter recorded it with a video camera and we presented that. You know, it's a very powerful social phenomena that bleeds over into a lot of social issues, but it's also very critical for investing. And it goes back to some very deeply rooted instinctual behaviors. So we've talked before about an instinct and intuition and a reason level of analysis. Groups can affect all of those, but some of the most potent group forces, like what you described there, if people are looking in a certain direction, we, we just reflexively look because it's just the herding mentality. There might be a lion coming from that direction if we're out on the Serengeti in our tribal hunter-gatherer past, right? So it, it really helps to have that sort of reflexive sense. And you see that in a lot of different species, and that's what makes that information very compelling and emotional information we have an extremely hard time ignoring. But it's also really quite dangerous when it's taken into an investment setting. Sometimes it will aid you. You can think of very long-term themes in investing that have been quite popular, that have been quite successful. But it's not always the case that following the group is going to end up in a bad outcome. If you think about Apple, Amazon, Facebook, the FANG effect, investors could have done very well over the last several years by just basically buying what everybody else liked. Now, eventually that tends to lead to excess. And if you don't understand the reasoning behind what it is that you're doing and you don't know when to get off that bus, so to speak, then it can end in a pretty extreme loss of capital. But at the same point in time, there are often instances where there are ideas that perhaps don't have the same level of power or the same level of momentum, so to speak, in terms of the business because they may be cyclical or more risky than others. The problem is when you adopt the thesis that's broadly held by the group or by the market that everyone is investing based off of the same narrative. And so you have this situation where if the world being an uncertain place, some undesirable circumstance arises, then everyone is in the position where they want to reverse the trade at the same time, resulting in a pretty significant drawdown. The analogy I like to use in this situation, if you imagine uh, everyone going to the theater to go see a very popular movie and they're all excited to be there, then a fire breaks out in the theater. Then they all want to leave at the same time, which could be very dangerous as they're all rushing towards the exits. Ironically, though, in the market, it's not simply that you can get up from your seat and walk away. You actually need to have somebody come in and take your seat <laughs> so that you can right. leave. Right. Not, not an easy sell at that point. Yes. Okay. So what are some things that you would suggest that people do to try to read the dynamics in a positive way? So it sounds like it can go wrong sometimes by following a group, but there's a lot that goes right by following a group as well. And you really have to try to balance your advantages and disadvantages. What are some things that you recommend that help you do that? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I think it's important to recognize that it is probably more often than not, not a good idea to follow the group. The situation that you have with the FANG stocks, for instance, those are companies with exceptional dynamics and they're really exceptional companies. That notion has been more broadly adopted over time, but that is a rarity. When you think about the average equity, they don't have the same franchise value as a lot of those stocks. So the FANG stocks, as a particular example, there are others as well where there's a consensus bias that is appropriate uh, because of the dynamics of the business. But then again, not understanding the dynamics of price. Price can act as a moderator for you if you can understand valuation and 
and understand what true value of the business is. It's not really necessarily an anchor when you're talking about a group because groups can create bubbles as they're self-reinforcing. If you have a sense of what the value is and let that control your behavior, you won't participate in the mania that ultimately arises within a group setting and you won't capture that upside. But at the same point in time, you won't be caught in the circumstance where the fire breaks out and you're looking to exit the theater when everyone else is as well. That's a tough thing to do. So what are some ways you can gauge the sentiment of a market group? So it sounds like one thing we do very naturally is in one-on-one interactions, we can get a lot of deep insight into what someone else is thinking. The problem is that's one or two individuals. And so do you have thoughts on how do you canvas kind of a wide swath of investors to get a read on what they're doing? Well, there's a couple of ways. One that I think is pretty helpful is to look at, and this is important to do at the end of your research process, is to look at a sell-side research. If it's a broadly held idea, usually there's a lot of sell-side coverage. And to the extent that you can see what the sell-side is saying, if they're all agreeing, then it's clearly a consensus idea. If you can see the logic and reasoning and, and ask yourself from stepping back in the situation, does that make any sense? In the 1990s, of course, there was a lot of metrics that were used to value companies based off of eyeballs, right? How many different eyeballs were on the company? The idea being that ultimately that would be able to be monetized in some way and create actual value. In each of these cases, typically what's happening is investors have created what I like to call a castle in the cloud, and that's what they're buying. They're buying the potential of future benefit associated with this enterprise, and it's usually associated with growth. There's a couple of mechanics that you can put into play that can help you out. For instance, you could have a, like a trailing stop loss. If you lose more than 20% on the name, then you just, regardless of the out, you exit. Now, ironically, that would have taken you out several times on something like Amazon, which has had 50% drawdowns several times over the last 20 years. So this sounds like one of those tricky elements where the market can't correct for group sentiment right away. So that can be difficult, but it may create opportunities as well, right? So as long as you have some edge on what's likely to occur, you can make money. Yeah, but it's it's hard though, because if you think of it as an individual investor or a small fund like SaberPoint, your resources are very limited. So you can have a view, you can approach it, but the chances are there are more influential investors that have much broader resources than you do. Their analysis is likely to be better than yours because they probably have better access to management. Now that doesn't mean that they're going to apply the right assumptions, but knowing that you're right or wrong in circumstances like this can be quite difficult. One approach is just to avoid it all together. I think it's important to look at something where there is a, a real franchise involved versus a company that's of lower quality, but there's still a consensus view among investors. A good example is housing last year. In 2017, housing had been quite good for a couple of years. There was this notion that there had been underbuilding in housing and demographically, you should see an increase in new home sales simply to compensate for the entry of the millennials into the housing market. But that notion became derailed when the Fed raised interest rates quite briskly and you had a 50 basis point jump in the 10 year last year, which ultimately resulted in that consensus idea being uh, overwhelmed as there was a shift. But in that case, how home building stocks are, are not great companies generally. So it's particularly difficult or dangerous when you're in a situation where everybody agrees about a lower quality issue that is subject to a lot of risks like higher interest rates or 
or in this case, you had trade issues or increasing the cost of squeezing margins for, for builders, higher labor, things of that nature. So when you transition from one widely adopted view to one that is different because of issue that's more risky, as opposed to something like Facebook, where there are risks associated with it, no question, but at least the dynamics of the business, it's very cash flow generative. And over time, that franchise can kind of bail you out to some degree if it's bought at a relatively reasonable price. So this gets into the phenomenon of expertise and how it affects our decision making. Experts tend to have major advantages because they have a deep understanding of a lot of these mechanics of certain business. There's certainly upside there, lots of upside, but there are those cases where an expert could be wrong. And uh, when many experts agree, there can be a real problem. I wonder if you have some thoughts about the sweet spot for how much you know about a particular industry, because sometimes a more novice person can gain some insight because they're bringing new information into the mental model, so to speak. So I think sometimes we start to, to take it back to mental models. We all have this running narrative or impression of how something's going to work. The difficulty is if we see the same things recur over and over, we begin to get overconfident that we understand what's going to happen. That can be exacerbated quite a lot by other major players in that area also agreeing. It starts to become the lore of an area. Do you think there's some value in bringing in kind of a novice viewpoint will maybe upend the narrative or notice some different feature because they're not taking a lot of these structural features for granted. So they're maybe more apt to analyze it more uh, completely. Yeah, this is really interesting kind of trade-off. So when you sit down to play a game that you're not familiar with, with a lot of people that are quite familiar, you're at a disadvantage. If you think of like a poker analogy where, you know, you've never played Omaha, but you sit down to play your first game, chances are you're going to struggle with that. What's different about the markets is you do bring a fresh perspective and price tends to reinforce people's viewpoints. So if you have, for instance, a group that's been underperforming for a couple of years and you step in as a new investor that doesn't have their judgment as clouded by sitting through the pain of that negative price action for the last couple of years, then you can often have an advantage. And if you're wrong, you're somewhat limited on your downside by the fact that most of the market consensus has already priced in a very negative story. And you're coming into that situation where you have a variant view. If you're wrong, you'll probably suffer a loss, but it probably won't be that drastic because there's already very negative sentiment surrounding it. But if you're right, then as sentiment reverses, you have a potential to make tremendous profit as the conditions of the business actually improve and the multiple expands as that narrative shifts back to a different view. One of the things that we notice in in psychology is that negative features tend to be more potent psychologically. And it may just be that we want to avoid threat, right? We want to we want to avoid danger. And I wonder if you see kind of a lag on the narrative turning positive after, after some negativity compared to the situation where I think when negative news hits, it may be more sudden. Yeah. And that actually creates a lot of opportunity too. So it's not uncommon that you can see green shoots, so to speak, or signs of improvement that are really out there in the market and quite obvious. It takes a while for sell-side analysts or for buy-side analysts after they've suffered or watched a security deteriorate to really change their view. And so usually you don't see like a V-shaped change in a security because it goes from having a more negative narrative to having a more positive narrative. It usually takes several data points before people start to adopt a more positive narrative. Makes a lot of sense. When we consider investors who really do a lot of their own individualized work, how would that be different than working in a group? Can you give a sense of the advantages to sort of being a lone 
wolf, because that, that's one of the strategies you've talked about before when we've discussed this topic of kind of how to avoid overfixation on either seemingly positive or seemingly negative news. So there's definitely positives and negatives to going your own way. What's maybe the loss versus the gain of working independently? When you think about a group dynamic, groups are only as good as their members. The lone wolf notion tends to be helpful within a group setting, but when you're off on your own, you have this danger associated with not having any damage control based off of your assessment. Every time anyone makes any assessment, they're going to bring to that assessment their own bias, their own vantage point, and it's very difficult to come up with a counter-argument that you don't just discount because you're already predisposed towards a certain narrative. When you have a group, it's important that that group be diverse, but that group can actually help you overcome some of the group think that is, exists within the market by providing variant viewpoints within that group. Yeah, this gets very convoluted because you're starting to talk to others and consider the biases associated with talking to other people and certain reinforcements that happen, but then you're also trying to read the broader sentiment of the whole market, which has its own sentiment and group think. So one of the things you hit upon was more individual lone wolf styles. You probably run the risk of a lot of these individual biases as your mental model or narrative on a position starts to play out. You don't have any checks and balances system. So if things are going along the route of your narrative, you may start to suffer from what we call the illusion of control or even the illusion of invulnerability, which are these biases where after enough successes without any sort of counter evidence, you start to get a really distorted sense of confidence. It's very hard to avoid this. Yeah, particularly when it's an idea that you've generated. We tend to like and, and really appreciate circumstances where we had a notion, a particular narrative, and that allowed us to make a prediction about the future. And we start to see that play out. It tends to reinforce and think, oh, well, I really was right. And every bit of incremental information then will allow you to step away and actually increase that feeling that you had, or perhaps take you beyond the initial assessment that you made because you feel very good about it, right? You've had positive reinforcement associated with the notion that you had initially. When you have a group dynamic, which I think we'll talk about more in the second podcast that, that we're going to have on uh, this topic. The group can act as a bit of a speed bump, a mental speed bump for you, because it wasn't their idea, so they weren't the genius that came up with it. You know, therefore they're not as fond of it. They're going to be more likely to come up with issues that they bring to your attention and remind you of what your initial thoughts were and how perhaps you might start to stray from the path. That's right, and this gets into group dynamics of how people actually interact. If you butt up against someone too hard with a counter position, they may just bounce off because they don't like how you're presenting it. You're walking a compromise line between there's a set of biases that come from the individual things like illusions of control, overconfidence bias, and this tendency toward preferring our own narrative. If we have some ownership of the ideas, they're somehow more salient in our mental model. They, they resonate with us, and we like to see those successes play out. And there's some satisfaction kind of seeming like you've cleverly figured out something that a whole group has failed to see. However, on, on the other side, if you're overly dependent upon groups and certainly expert opinion, and you haven't done the sort of careful analysis yourself, you run the risk of falling into what's known as in-group bias, which is, you know, all those people can't be wrong. So I, I, I don't quite see what they're seeing, but I'll go with that anyway. That can be very dangerous because they may act more quickly because they own the opinion in that case. You don't have enough ownership of it. So I think where we're going with this is the advice would be to, to do some careful independent work yourself, but have a checks and balances system in 
in place where you're you're regularly looking at sentiment and management behavior and structural actions that give you clues that better inform your mental model. I think that's right. I think it's good to bifurcate the thought into thinking about the group or the market as one set of analysis. And then your own group dynamics to the extent that you've engaged an investment club or you have an investment team that's trying to make its own investment decision where you're incorporating that group into that decision to help overcome bias that you may have. You should think of one notion of the group or the market as a factor in your analysis. Who is it that's on the other side of the trade? What do they think? Is my thinking consistent with theirs? There's great analogy associated with this that I'll bring up as we're moving towards a close here. That when you're investing in something that's quite popular, then it's something like a group of people that are pushing a school bus up the side of a hill. And over time, one of those people who are pushing the bus, they go and they jump in the bus, right? And because they see the direction and they see where it's going. And they we get, tend to hate those people, but we sort of think they're onto something. They're well, onto something. We? That's right. And so ultimately, one person after another starts jumping into the bus, and then there's no one left to push it up the hill. And so what does it do? It goes back down. And that's somewhat similar to following the herd within the market in that they're ultimately you run out of buyers. I think we've run out of time on this particular episode. We will revisit this in groupthink uh, number two, where we examine more of the uh, in-group dynamics of working with a team of investors. Yep. So we're out. That's all. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, a Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.